Psalm 92, a psalm, a song for the Sabbath day. It is good to give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your loving kindness in the morning and your faithfulness every night on an instrument of 10 strings on the lute and on the harp with harmonious sound. For you, Lord, have made me. You've made me glad through your work. I will triumph in the works of your hands. O Lord, how great are your works. Your thoughts are very deep. A senseless man does not know, nor does a fool understand this. When the wicked spring up like grass, and when all the workers of iniquity flourish, it is that they may be destroyed forever. But you, Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All the workers of iniquity shall be scattered. By my horn you have exalted like a wild ox. I have been anointed with fresh oil. My eye has seen my desire on my enemies. My ears hear my desire on the wicked who rise up against me. The righteous shall flourish like a palm tree. He shall grow like a cedar in Lebanon. Those who are planted in the house of the Lord shall flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in their old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. Okay, our sermon for the week is Genesis 49, 22 through 26. This is called The Blessing Upon Joseph and Benjamin. So starting in 49, verse 22, it says these words. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. I'll tell you before we get into this that there are not a lot of life applications like the past four or five sermons where we've been in the blessings of the other sons of Israel. There's not a lot we can apply to our life. I just want you to be aware of that in advance. But so far we've looked at the blessings upon of Jacob upon ten of his sons, and today we're going to look into the last two blessings, those of Joseph and Benjamin, the sons of his beloved wife, Rachel. In these blessings, like all of the others thus far, we will see the future of the sons' tribes revealed. But more than that, we will again see that every word pronounced points to the work of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to read you something that I thought was absolutely astonishing. This is the 19th century Bible commentator Charles Ellicott wrote these words about the blessing upon Joseph, a blessing that we're going to look at in just a moment. Listen to what he says. And thus Jacob magnifies again and again, but in obscure terms, his blessing upon Joseph, which, when analyzed, amounts to simply excessive fruitfulness with no messianic or spiritual prerogative. Imagine that. Ellicott looked at the blessing as a mere earthly pronouncement with nothing more in it. In it, he found no messianic or spiritual hints at all. If this were true, then what would be the purpose of even including it? In fact, what would be the point of the majority of the stories that we've looked at in the past 127 Genesis sermons? 
Without Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of every type, every picture, every story, and every sacrifice that we see. The entire Bible truly makes no sense at all. It appears disjointed, hard to follow, and without any ultimate purpose. It appears to be a convoluted book of just meandering stories that often seem bizarre or irrelevant to the world in which we live. But when viewed in the greater perspective of God revealing himself through Jesus Christ, the entire book not only begins to make sense, it becomes a cohesive whole that makes absolute sense. So let us never fail to look for Christ in every story, on every page, and in every detail. He is there, and he is telling us that he has a plan and that we can trust in him. Our text verse today comes from John chapter 5. It's the 39th verse. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The scriptures have their purpose, and that is to point us to Jesus Christ. When Jesus spoke these words to those around him, only the Old Testament existed. What this means is that he is to be found in the Old Testament. If one can search the scriptures to find a testimony of Jesus, then the implication is that all of those scriptures are a testimony of him. When we open the pages of the Bible, we are looking at words written about him. We will see this yet again today, numerous times. In the end, it is all about Jesus Christ and how he deals with us, Jew and Gentile, Israel and the church. So let's go to that superior word now, and may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. Okay, I only have two thoughts for you today. The first is a long one. The second is very short. The first is the blessing upon Joseph, which is verses 22 through 26. Today we're going to see Jacob bless his final two sons, both the sons of his beloved wife, Rachel. He first blesses Joseph, the elder of the two. The record of Joseph's birth is recorded in Genesis 30, verses 22 through 24. <laughs> there it says these words. Then God remembered Rachel, and God listened to her and opened her womb. And she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. So she called his name Joseph and said, The Lord shall add to me another son. Unlike all of his older brothers, the name Joseph then is based on two words, not on one. The duality in his name looked not only backward, but also forward. The word for has taken, used by Rachel, is the word asaf. The word for add is Yosef, and both point to his name. In taking away the reproach, Rachel looked for the Lord to give her another son, and so she named him Yosef. He shall add, increase, repeat, or double. The name he received was literally fulfilled in two ways. First, he had a brother, Benjamin. But Joseph himself also had two children, Ephraim and Manasseh. In taking away her reproach, God showered Rachel with his grace. The name Joseph, as we have seen through many sermons, has been fulfilled not only literally in a brother and in his sons, but in many, many other ways as well. He has continuously pictured Christ throughout the stories that God has given. This blessing upon him is going to be no different. It is comprised of four divisions, which are, I want to read you what these four divisions of the blessing are. The first is his prosperity, which is likened to a vine. The second is a trial between him and his foes. The third is him prevailing over his foes. And the fourth is his receiving the blessing of heaven, sea, earth, and his paternal family. If you think of Jesus, it is an exact comparison to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, 
Joseph is a fruitful bough. The words in Hebrew are ben porat Yosef. Literally, son, the word ben means son, fruitful Joseph. In this, using the word porat for fruitful, there's a play being made on the name of his son Ephraim, a name which we have seen the importance of in previous sermons. Without the need for too much detail, we have seen Joseph's entire life pointing to the work of Christ. The fruitfulness of Joseph in the sons which descend from him is reflective of the idea of fruitfulness in Christ, in bringing many sons to glory. Jesus himself used this same metaphor in John chapter 15. Here he said these words, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Verse 22 continues, a fruitful bough by a well. Again, he uses the term son, ben porat ale ayin, son fruitful by the well. A vine can only live if watered. If by a well, it's not only going to live, but it's going to flourish. The symbolism of a fruitful tree is given many times, or a vine as well. A tree or a vine is given many times in the Bible. Psalm 1 is a perfect example of the spiritual application of this temporal truth. I want to read this to you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And here's what he says, the comparison. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Joseph shot forth two luxuriant branches who were noted as sons of Israel, Ephraim and Manasseh. Christ is the embodiment of the law, like a vine who has put forth branches from both Jew and Gentile, both of which are most fruitful. Verse 22 continues, his branches run over the wall. He changes the word here. Instead of Ben's son, he says, banot, banot sa'ada alesur, daughters run over the wall. The symbolism is beautiful. The last section spoke of son. This one speaks of daughters, so it's a family affair. When a vine is by a wall, it absorbs the heat of the wall. As long as it has a continuous source of water, the heat will do as much to make that vine fruitful as the water itself. Eventually, what will it do? It'll shoot its branches completely over the wall and take advantage of even more space and support and heat. It is a beautiful metaphor from nature which looks to the work of Christ throughout all of history, past, present, and future. Like the giving of his name, which looked both backward and forward, this blessing does the same. In the past, Joseph prudently gathered the fruit of Egypt for the famine and preserved both Egypt and his family and allowed them to flourish. But in their future, his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, would spread and flourish throughout all of the land of Israel, covering territory on both sides of the Jordan River. And they would be fruitful at all times of redemptive history as well. During the time of punishment upon the Jews, the people of Ephraim would, in essence, run over the wall to become the fullness of the Gentiles, as we saw in a previous sermon. The imagery given by Jacob concerning Joseph is exactingly fulfilled in Jesus Christ in every way. I mean, we've only done one verse. And how many hints of Jesus have we seen already? And you think of what that guy Ellicott said. There's no messianic or spiritual application at all. We've probably had 10 in just one verse. Blessed is the man, one of the winners, who walks not in the ungodly's counsel, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. 
but in the law of the Lord is his delight, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that in its season brings forth its fruit, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper, for deep is his root. Verse 23, the the archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. A literal rendering of this verse would be provoked him and shot at and laid snares for him, masters of arrows. This, like the previous verse, looks both backward to Joseph's life and forward to Christ. Using harsh words and actions against another person is often likened to the shooting of arrows in the Bible. A great example of this is found in the 64th Psalm. Here's what it says. Hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from the fear of the enemy. Hide me in the, from the secret plots of the wicked, from the rebellion of the workers of iniquity, who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows. Bitter words, that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. So you see how the arrows are pictures of words being used against somebody. The actions of Joseph's brothers are described here by Jacob. His brothers reviled him, and they acted against him by throwing him into the pit and then selling him off to the Egyptians. Those sermons showed us how the events perfectly mirrored the events of the life of Jesus. Even while on the cross, the symbolism he now uses of of archers and arrows comes to mind. From the 22nd Psalm, which is a psalm about the cross, we read this. It says, But I am a worm and no man a reproach of men and despised by the people. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. (laughs) Matthew, the book of Matthew cites this very verse when describing what occurred when Christ was crucified. So I want to read you that. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. So you can see the arrows being shot at him while he's on the cross. Again, the spirit of God is calling to mind the work of Jesus Christ as it will unfold in the future of redemptive history. Verse 24, but his bow remained in strength. Despite the attacks by the archers, meaning his brothers of the past and those who would come against Christ in the future, the bow of each remained in strength. The word for strength here shows that this is a prophecy of the future, not just what occurred in the past. It is the word ikan, which indicates going on forever without cessation, such as the flowing streams or the constancy of the eternal hills. And it is the word where we derive our modern name, Ethan. So if you ever meet somebody named Ethan, anybody here know anybody named Ethan? Well, you can tell him that his name means perennial, ever-flowing, or permanence. This enduring bow of God is referred to elsewhere in Scripture, such as in the seventh psalm. God is a just judge, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Despite being crucified, being vexed, and being shot at, the attacks of the enemies could not prevail against Christ. His bow truly did and does remain in strength as he prepares for battle. Verse 24 goes on, And the arms of his hands were made strong. 
The Hebrew for the words were made strong is the word pazaz. And it's a difficult word to translate. It probably means something more like pliant or nimble. It's only used one other time in the Bible, and that's in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where it is speaking of King David leaping. I'll read you that. It says, Now the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping, that word pizzazz, and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. <clears throat> the idea is that despite being attacked, Joseph was able to overcome the attacks, and he remained nimble and able to continue with his affairs without interruption. That is a beautiful picture of Christ who was nailed to the tree and yet walked out of the tomb on the third day under his own power, ready to walk all the way to Emmaus that same day without any difficulty at all. Verse 24 goes on. <clears throat> By the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. This term here, the mighty God of Jacob, will be used five more times in the Bible, both in the Psalms and in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 49, it says this. I will feed those who oppress you with their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with sweet wine. All flesh shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Joseph's hands were strengthened by the Lord, and such is the same with Christ. The dual fulfillment of these words is a glorious testament to the spirit of prophecy which is being uttered by Jacob. Verse 24 continues, From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. This particular portion of verse 24 is very complicated and it's debated over. It is either speaking of the time of Joseph's exaltation to being the leader of Egypt, and thus he is the shepherd in the stone of Israel, or it is speaking of the fact that Joseph's strength was derived from the shepherd, the stone of Israel, meaning the Lord. And because of the ambiguity or the difficulty, it is certainly referring to both. As Joseph pictured Christ, he was the shepherd of his people and the stone which upheld and supported them, just as Christ is the shepherd of his people and the stone of their foundation as a people. At the same time, it is from God that Joseph received his abilities and his authority. And likewise, Jesus came from God. His humanity and his deity are united in such a way that both are true of him. He is the good shepherd of John chapter 10, and he is the stone which the builders rejected, who has become the chief cornerstone, which is mentioned in both testaments of the Bible. The entire passage is spoken as a blessing upon Joseph and his son after him, and yet it is a prophecy of the greater work of Christ Jesus as presented throughout the entire body of Scripture. Verse 25, by the God of your father who will help you. These words here follow on in a continuous thought from the previous verse. In other words, the God who made his arm strong is the God who will help you. Jacob calls him the God of your father, which shows his eternality. He trans, you know, he goes over many generations. And so he is the source of all help. This is perfectly reflected in the 118th Psalm when referring to Jesus, who is helped by the Lord. These words are found in the same psalm that refer to Jesus as the stone. Let me read you this. It says, you pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. Speaking of Jesus receiving the help, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. Verse 25 continues, and by the Almighty who will bless you. Shaddai, or the Almighty, is the one who provides fruitfulness. He ensures the protection of the people and gives them an inheritance in the land in which to dwell. The Lord is the Almighty, 
and it is the Lord in whose name Jesus came and in whose name Jesus was blessed. Again, from that key 118th Psalm, we read this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. Every word finds its fulfillment in Jesus. As I said before, I can't imagine Charles Ellicott saying what he said. He says, this is just a, a pronouncement over uh, his son Joseph without any spiritual or messianic application. And that's all we've seen is everything points to Jesus Christ. Verse 25 goes on with blessings of the heaven above. The blessings of the heaven above in the earthly sense are the dews and the rains that come down on the land, the sunshine, the favorable winds, the clouds which give relief from the heat. The blessings of heaven above in the spiritual sense are the positions of power, of authority, and of honor. Verse 25 goes on, blessings of the deep that lies beneath. The blessings of the deep in the physical world are those things which fill life with abundance of wealth. You've got minerals, you've got metal, you've got oil and gas, fish in the waters, cisterns of water hidden under the ground, all of those type of things. In the spiritual world, they are the keys to death in Hades and the precious souls of men who have been locked up captive in those places. Verse 25 continues, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of the breasts and of the womb in the earthly sense are how men and beasts are multiplied and how they're nourished. It is a blessing upon Joseph for many descendants as well as large herds of cattle, sheep, and other animals. In the spiritual realm, these blessings are the increase of the redeemed and the pure spiritual milk of the word by which they are nourished. In the earthly sense, all of these were pronounced upon Joseph. In the spiritual sense, these words are all spoken of Jesus. The blessings of heaven, earth, and fruitfulness all point to Christ. Again here, as with every word of this chapter so far, all of Jacob's pronouncements have been directed by the Spirit to show the future of Joseph's tribe and at the same time to reveal Christ Jesus. Verse 26, the blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. Now I want to tell you that if you have the NIV and you're looking at that, it translates this a little bit differently. It says, your father's blessings are greater than the blessings of the ancient mountains. This is based on a couple different source uh, manuscripts of the Old Testament, including the Greek manuscript. It would also then match the blessing of Moses, which he gives upon Joseph's tribe, which is recorded in Deuteronomy 33. They're very similar if you use the NIV uh, translation. And it would also match the continuous thought that Jacob is presenting. But whichever is actually correct, they're very close, but they are a little bit different. The idea is that Joseph has received an immense blessing. And in fact, it is a greater blessing than those received by his own ancestors because it includes the double blessing upon his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. The blessings are so great that it says they reach to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. That is a way of saying that they shall never, never end. They are eternal in nature. And because of this, it is ultimately pointing to Christ, whose throne is forever. And in him is the greatest blessing of all, the book of Hebrews speaks of the supremacy of Christ and attributes many blessings from elsewhere in the Bible to him, such as this one found in Hebrews chapter 1. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Verse 26 continues, they shall be on the head of Joseph. 
The head is the highest point of the man, and it is the place which more distinguishes a person from any other feature on the body. When a person is anointed with oil as a blessing or conferment of authority, it's always done on the head. When a person is filled with joy, it is said to be on their head. This is seen in the book of Isaiah, for example, when speaking of the ransomed of the Lord. Let me read this to you. I love this one, my favorite portions of the book of Isaiah. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing, with everlasting joy on their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. The blessings conferred upon Joseph then are said to be upon his head as a mark of distinction to be seen and enjoyed by all. Verse 26 continues, and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. The crown of the head is not speaking about a crown on the head. Instead, it is speaking of the crown of the head, the very top part of the head. The words are parallel to what he just said, but they intensify the words he spoke. Not only is there a blessing upon the head, but upon the very crown of it. Again, this is reflective of the words of Hebrews chapter 1 when speaking of Christ, which I read a moment ago. I want to read it to you again. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil, with the oil of gladness more than your companions. And Jacob finishes with the words of him who was separate from his brothers. The word for separate here is the word nazir. It is the source of where the word Nazarite comes from. If you know what a Nazarite is, it's a person that makes a vow in the Old Testament. This certainly has a twofold meaning of not only having been separated from his brothers by a long period when he was persecuted and humiliated, but also he was separated, he was elevated above them to extraordinary dignity and even preeminence. And this is an exact picture of Jesus Christ in both ways. He was persecuted and humiliated and separated from his brothers, while at the same time being exalted and given preeminence over them. And as an interesting connection to the New Testament, Jesus called is called a Nazarene in Matthew chapter 2, where it says these words. Let me read this. Nazarene is not a Nazarite. I want you to understand that, but it calls him a Nazarene. Here's what it says. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. However, nowhere in the Old Testament is the coming Messiah specifically called a Nazarene. This then only leaves a couple of possibilities for what Matthew was referring to. One is the word netzer, which means branch. And we saw that in a previous sermon. It's uh, in Isaiah 11, verse 1. Or it is speaking of this word right here, nazir, which Jacob uses. Or what I would prefer is it actually refers to both, both the branch and the separate one. The word Nazir here and the word Nazarene in the New Testament both mean exactly the same thing, consecrated one. As Joseph has consistently pictured Christ and because Jacob is prophesying by the Spirit of God, it is likely that the words of Matthew are the fulfillment of this ancient prophecy by Jacob over his beloved son, Joseph. In the witness of the stars, Joseph is represented by the constellation Sagittarius, the archer or the bowman. And this is certain because of the words, his bow remained in strength. Sagittarius is commonly represented with a bow bent and an arrow drawn up to the head in full strength. As represented in this constellation, we see an exacting description of Christ given in the 45th Psalm. Here it says this, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. 
Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one, with your glory and your majesty. And in your majesty ride prosperously because of truth, humility, and righteousness. And your right hand shall teach you awesome things. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. The connecting constellations to Sagittarius are Lyra, the harp, which symbolized praise prepared for the conqueror, Ara, the altar, which indicates God's fire of judgment on his enemies, and Draco, the dragon, which is that old serpent, the devil, who is cast down from heaven to earth. The symbolism is clear in the prophecies over Joseph and in the work of Christ presented in the Bible. The heavens declare the message of the Redeemer, our Lord Jesus, which is prefigured by this ancient blessing upon Joseph. God is a just judge, one who is not slack, and God is angry with the wicked every day. Certainly, if he does not turn back, he will sharpen his sword with which to slay. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts by which man will breathe his last breath. I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness all my days. And to the name of the Lord Most High, I will sing songs of praise. Our second thought today, the blessing upon Benjamin, which is verse 27, which is our last verse of the day. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. Benjamin's blessing seems at first contrary to what one might expect of a beloved son of Rachel, but it exactingly reflects the future of his people and even the work of Christ himself. A ravenous wolf is bent on its mission, and it is completely determined in its purpose. The word for ravenous here is the word yitroth, which indicates to tear, hence a wolf that tears. The idea of him devouring in the morning and dividing the spoil at night indicates a ceaseless effort. The history of Benjamin in the time of Judges is perfectly reflected in this verse. In one instance, they came against all of the other tribes of Israel in battle. At that time, there were 26,000 men in Benjamin who fought against and prevailed over 400,000 of the tribes of Israel. Eventually, though, they were beaten down to only 600 men. But they came back as a tribe, dividing the spoils of the woman, women who would become their wives in order to repopulate their numbers. In the early history of Israel as a kingdom, the first king, Saul, was a Benjamite who devoured his prey on all sides, as 1 Samuel 14 records. Let me read this to you. So Saul established his sovereignty over Israel and fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the people of Ammon, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he harassed them, and he gathered an army and attacked the Amalekites and delivered Israel from the hands of those who plundered them. At the other end of the Old Testament times, who do you have? Mordecai and Esther of the tribe of Benjamin, who prevailed over the wicked Haman and divided his spoils. Thus Saul tore in the morning, and Mordecai and Esther divided the spoils in the evening. In the morning of the church age, there is Paul of the tribe of Benjamin, who started as a ravenous wolf. He persecuted the church, but eventually he came to Christ. And since then, his letters have been and now are church doctrine, even to this day, even at the end of the age. And when the tribulation comes, we have the 144,000 sealed of Revelation who are pictured by Benjamin in our previous sermons. They will complete the work of dividing the spoils before Christ returns to earth. These are the constant patterns seen in the people of Benjamin, all prophesied by Jacob over his youngest son. Ultimately, though, even Benjamin's blessing points to the work of Christ. 
It is the Lord who tears, and it is the Lord who heals. As we see in Hosea chapter 6, which uses the exact same word for torn as was used in Benjamin's blessing, says these words, Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as in the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and the former rain to earth. It is also the Lord who divides the spoils, exactly as was prophesied over Benjamin. The great suffering servant passage of Isaiah uses the exact same terms to speak of him that spoke of Benjamin by Jacob. Here's these words. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil, that same term, with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. There are numerous other patterns and pictures of both Joseph and Benjamin, which are fulfilled in Christ. But I got to tell you what, time doesn't allow for more than we've seen. And what we have seen demonstrates that every word, every word spoken by Jacob over his 12 sons points directly to the work of Jesus Christ. And all of it has not only been recorded in the Bible, but it's been placed in the heavens above us as well. We can see it at night. In the witness of the stars, the final constellation represented by Benjamin is Capricorn. On the Egyptian sphere, according to Dr. Hales, it was represented by a goat, which was led by Pan, who had a wolf's head. The three accompanying constellations are Sagitta, the arrow, representing the arrow of God, which is sent forth, Aquila, the eagle, which is the smitten one falling, think of Christ there, and Delphinus, the dolphin, who is the dead one rising again. With a few variations in what I've presented over these past five sermons, the book, The Witness of the Stars, written by E.W. Bollinger in 1893, gives a snapshot of the redemptive plans of God, which are placed in the stars as a heavenly view for us to see. It would be good to be reminded right now as we close that using the stars for divining the future or as guides for our daily life, like horoscopes and stuff, is explicitly forbidden in the Bible. This is no different than taking the Bible and misusing it for the same purposes, which we talked about in our Bible study before we got here today. People making prophecies over people which aren't true, but they're using it kind of in a way of divining the future. What God has given us in these things is for the purpose of seeing his plan of redemption centered on Jesus Christ, not a plan for our prosperity, which is centered on us. And the reason why is obvious. It's all about Jesus Christ from him and for him and to him are all things. We are merely the recipients of his love and his grace, a love which is meticulously recorded in the Bible for us to read, to believe, and to cherish. And so I would say to you, if you have never called out to Christ to save you, this is the most important thing that you could ever do. And so I'd like just another moment to explain to you how you can be saved by his work and reconciled to God through his shed blood. The Bible says that we have a problem in us. It says that we have sinned. And that sin, here's God. He's infinite. He's outside of time. He's holy. And here we are in the stream of time and we have sin in our lives and it makes a, a separation between us. We die spiritually when we have sin in us. Adam sinned and he died spiritually and that has been inherited by every human being since Adam. But God came to correct that. 
And the way that he did that was by sending his son, Jesus Christ, who was born of a woman, but not born of a man. And so he did not inherit Adam's sin. He was born sinless. And so he came to live a perfect life that you and I cannot live. And that's the purpose of the four gospels. They're recorded to show us that he lived without sin. He was born without sin, so he was qualified to replace Adam. The four gospels show that he in fact did live without sin. And so now he is qualified to take our place and move us from Adam to him. And so he gave his life up on the cross. And the Bible says that if we trust in what God did through his son, Jesus Christ, we put our trust in him, then his righteousness is granted to us and our sin goes to the cross. And he went into the grave to carry away our sin. But because he had no sin of his own, he came back out of the grave. So all of that sin is washed away eternally and we are in Christ. That's what God asks us to trust is that he is capable of doing that and it is sufficient. There's nothing else that we can add to it. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. A gift is something you can't earn. You simply receive by faith. And it says that if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. That's it. There's nothing else you have to do. You don't have to send money to people on TV. You don't have to help old ladies across the street, but I think you probably should. You know, they need help too. But there's nothing you need to do. He's done it all if you just simply trust in the work of Jesus Christ. And even the heavens testify to this. The Bible does as well. Trust that it is God's word. Trust that Jesus Christ is sufficient to save you and call on him. All right? Our closing verse today comes from the 18th Psalm. He teaches my hands to make war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze, kind of that symbolism we had from Joseph. You have also given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. Wonderful words, huh? Next week is Genesis 49, 28 through 33. What figure in the book of Genesis had more detail about his life than any other person? Which one? What'd you say? Joseph. No, it was actually Jacob. Jacob had more detail about his life than anybody else. Joseph is a close second, but I got to tell you what. Next week, we're going to see it. Jacob breathed his last, our 128th Genesis sermon. And, you know, I was thinking about this. I, I just have to say this because maybe I'll die and I'll never get this thought out of my head. But I was thinking, you know, the book of Genesis, we're almost done with it, covers over 2,300 years of human history. And then you come to Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the four books, and they only cover like 40 years of history. This is how important Genesis is. All of the foundations, all of the foundations of what God is going to do in human history, he's shown us in the lives of these people. Next week, Jacob breathed his last. What a sad thing. But we'll see him again. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. And he has a good plan and a purpose for you. So call on him and let him do marvelous things for you and through you. All right? Our poem today is called A Fruitful Bow and a Ravenous Wolf. The blessing of the sons of Israel are finished in Joseph and Benjamin. Marvelous things of their future, the blessings do tell. And of the Christ the Lord too, words which point to him. And so upon these two sons, these words he did proclaim, prophecies of things to come given to each by name. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a well. His branch ru- branches run over the wall. The archers have bitterly grieved him, shot at him, and hated him. But his bow remained in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong. 
by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob, from there, this shepherd, the stone of Israel, by the God of your father who will help you, and by the Almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father have excelled the blessings of my ancestors up to the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of the head of him who was separate from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf. In the morning he shall devour the prey, and at night he shall divide the spoil. With these words, the blessings upon his sons are complete. The prophecies have been uttered by the Spirit to each. Some were harsh, while others were sweet. But in the end, into our souls they do reach. They ask us to look inside and believe what we have heard. The words were fulfilled in the tribes of each son. But they speak, also speak of more. They tell about our Lord, pointing to him and the many great things he has done. And in the skies, the story has been shown with signs pointing to God's beautiful plan for us. To us, these wondrous things are made known, which tell of our Savior, our Lord, our Redeemer, Jesus. Who could hold back from giving him their praise? May it never be so, but let us exalt him all of our days. Great is the Lord, great, majestic, and wondrous. He is worthy of all honor. He is our Lord, Jesus. Hallelujah and amen. Lord, what a wonderful, wonderful chapter of the Bible this has been so far. These blessings upon the sons have been the most remarkable, remarkable thing that I've ever imagined, that every single word of those blessings has pointed to Jesus Christ. It should have been obvious when we started this, but it just wasn't. And until you show us these things, it, it, we see it, and it just is beyond, beyond description to know that you have so tended to your word that it shows us without a doubt your great love for us. And all of it is centered on the person of Jesus, what he came and did for us that we could not do. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you. We give you glory and honor for your superior word. And I pray for each person here. I know that there are all kinds of uh, needs in the, the people here. I know that there are hopes and struggles and trials and joys and sadnesses and uh, uh, just be with them through all of these things and keep reminding them that you are there. You are an ever-present help in times of need. You're the one that gives us blessings. You bestow them upon us when we don't deserve it. And you, then you just keep doing it. You keep blessing us with more and more. What a great God you are. Praise you. Praise you, Lord. And we'd like to honor you in a moment with uh, the communion table and uh, to reflect on what Jesus Christ did and uh, help us to carry that with us each moment of our lives and to focus on that above all else. And we'll be sure to give you the praise and the glory and the honor that you're due, and we'll do so in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we get the instruction for the Lord's Supper from the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And there, Paul writes these instructions to us. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and he would have given thanks over it. He would have said, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, and he would have blessed us as well, saying these words, Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, melech haolam, borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. 
This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.